during this season, right after Easter, what we've been doing is we're trying to tease out some of the implications of the resurrection, that if Jesus really did rise from the grave, what does that mean? If he's, if he's making all things new, what are some of these new things that we are being brought into? And so we've seen that he's invited us into this new creation. Saw a few weeks ago that he gives us new selves as opposed to our old selves. Uh, last week we saw he gives us a new command to love one another. And uh, this morning I want you to see he gives us a new spirit, which is to say a new power. And uh, to set that up... Um, I came across this uh, story in a, a few years ago that, you know, at some point back in the day, there was, there was some department within the federal government that decided that it would be a good idea to put nutritional information on all of our food. So, you know, you go to the grocery store, you can pick up anything, you see how many carbohydrates or sodium or sugar is in the thing, just all this information. You, you have it at grocery stores, restaurants, movie theaters are required to do this. And uh, there was the study that was done. They did this study, whoever they are. They did the study. It was a seven-year-long study to, to uh, look into this. And they concluded at the end of this seven-year study that 85% of Americans agreed that having access to this kind of information is helpful. 85, that's astounding. 85% of Americans can't agree on anything. And yet, 85% of us said... When I am at the grocery store, I need to know how much sugar is in these Oreos. So, 85% said, yes, this information is helpful. And yet, at the end of this study, they also concluded that having access to that information has resulted in zero changes in eating habits of Americans. That there's this literal gap between what we know we sh should or shouldn't eat and then our ability to eat it or not eat it. Use myself for an example. A month or so ago, I went out to lunch with one of you who will remain nameless because I want to protect this person's dignity, but we went out to Wimpy's Burgers and Fries, and I knew going in that I should not have a double cheeseburger and fries and a milkshake for lunch. Did it stop me? No, oh, no, not at all. I went hard and then hated myself after it. Uh, but there's this gap between what you know is good for you and your ability to do it. So in a similar vein, um, C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, at the end of that book, he argues that basically all of the major world religions agree on ethics, there's minor differences here and there, but he says there's almost universal consent, consentment, consensus is the word, universal consensus of morality. Like we, we all kind of generally know you shouldn't kill people, you shouldn't steal from people, you shouldn't oppress people, you should be generous, on and on and on and on, and yet the world's a mess because we don't do it. There's this gap between what we know is good and right and our ability to actually do it. It's an interesting question to try to think through why that gap exists. The Bible gives its answer for why that gap exists, and it also provides a solution for what you do about that gap. How do you get the power to do the thing that you know that you should do but that you can't do? So that's what I want to look at uh, with you this morning. Three things. What that power is, what the power does, and then how to get it. What it is, what it does, how to get it. What it is. What is this power? 
Well, we're looking at this uh, passage from Ezekiel chapter 11. We're kind of parachuting into the middle of a very strange and bizarre book from the Hebrew Scriptures. It was written 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago. It's, it's, it's primarily uh, about this guy named Ezekiel. He was a 25-year-old dude living in Jerusalem. He was training to be a priest, and so he's studying the Bible. He's, he's about to, you know, become a priest in the next few years, and there's this foreign nation called Babylon that rolls into Jerusalem and destroys a lot of the city and essentially kidnap a bunch of people and leaders and religious leaders and even their own king from Jerusalem and export them back to Babylon. And Ezekiel is one of these people that gets essentially kidnapped. I mean, you just imagine the the horror of this, you know, foreign army coming into Memphis and, and uprooting you from your, your family and your home and then dropping you into this middle of this, you know, foreign land, this foreign country you've never been in before. You don't speak the language. It's totally, you're shell-shocked. You're disoriented. It's, it's overwhelming. So here's Ezekiel in this foreign land, and he's there, you know, five years into this captivity, he has this vision on his 30th birthday. So his his 30th birthday present from God is this crazy vision, which he writes, and it's basically what the bulk, the bulk of that book is about. But if you boil down the whole book, it kind of could summarize it like this. The reason why this big, horrible captivity thing has happened is because God is judging Israel for their idolatry and for their social injustice. They have failed to love God, and they have failed to love their neighbors. And so, God sends them off to Babylon, and yet, there's also this message of hope that one day God's going to restore them and bring them back. And so that's kind of what chapter 11 is about. You get a little glimpse into this, the hope of what God is going to do. So let's look at it real quick. Look at verse uh, 17. He says, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. In other words, he's saying, I've scattered you, but I'm going to gather you and bring you back home. And it keeps going. Look at verse 18. And when they come there, when they come back home, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. We'll talk about what that means here in a minute. Verse 19. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And so God's making this promise. I'm, I'm not just going to restore you at a collective level. I'm going to restore you at a personal level. I'm going to take out your heart of stone. Now, what is that? It's, it's this image, this metaphor of, of a hard heart, a heart that is uh, calloused and impenetrable. It can't receive criticism. It's stuck. It's stubborn. It can't change. And he says, I'm going to take that out. I'm going to get rid of that. And I'm going to put in a heart of flesh which is to say a heart that is soft and tender and malleable and vulnerable and a heart that is, it can, it can receive criticism. It's, it's changeable. And the way that he's going to go about doing that, he says, is that he's going to put a new spirit within them. He's going to completely re-engineer their internal wiring and give them a new spirit. Now, that's a strange idea. What, 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 is, what, is, what does that mean? What is a new spirit? Well, you get, you get kind of hints and clues and glimpses of this throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, but it's not really until you get to the New Testament in John chapter 20 that it becomes clear. 
This is after uh, Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, and, and after three days, he, he is raised, and he, and he goes and he visits with his disciples. And it says in John chapter 20 that he breathes on them. He says, peace be with you, and he breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in this day and age, if you were to breathe on someone, <gasps> like, you're not going to become friends with people, especially in, you know, COVID land, because, the, you know, the, the fear is... The, uh, the germs and the viruses, whatever is in you, it's going to get in me. Whatever is, whatever is inside of you is going to get in me. I don't want what's in you in me, but that's kind of the point. That's why Jesus breathes on them. The word spirit in Greek and in Hebrew is, is, is just the, the word for breath, the word for wind. It's, it's an ancient, ancient Near Eastern way of saying your breath is what animates you. It's your life. It's your energy. And so Jesus is saying, I am going to give you my breath, my power, my energy. So what Ezekiel 11 is saying is that this new spirit that God's going to put in his people is his very presence, his energy, his life, his power indwelling in his people. Now, if I haven't lost you in all of that, uh, think about it like this. It's, it's been a hot minute since I have uh, talked about Harry Potter. I feel like I need to rectify that. So if you remember, at the end of book two, The Chamber of Secrets, uh, Harry is asking Dumbledore all these questions. He's, he's gone through some pretty traumatic things in his life, and he's confused, and so he's talking to Dumbledore, and he's like, okay, Dumbledore, help me understand. Tom Riddle told me that, that me and him were very similar, and I don't understand why he said that, and why is it that I can speak parcel tongue? That's bizarre. And uh, when the sorting hat was put on me, it said that I would make a great Slytherin, and I, I don't know what to do with this information. So here's what Dumbledore says, quote, unless I am much mistaken, he, meaning Voldemort, transfer, transferred some of his own powers to you the night he gave you that scar, not something he intended to do, I'm sure. And so here he says, Voldemort put a bit of himself in me? And Dumbledore says, it certainly seems so. Now, Harry was just told that some of Voldemort is in him. And if I can even dare to put it this way, the Bible is saying something kind of similar. That God himself has decided to put some of him in his people. That his very life, his spirit, gets breathed into and indwells his people. That's what this new power is. It is his spirit given to you completely by grace. Now, if that's what this new power is, if that's what this new spirit is, it's God's very spirit, what does it do? That's the second thing. That's what it is. What does it do? Does this power help you run marathons? Does it help you do burpees? What does it do? Well, this passage tells you Verse 20, he gives you the spirit, he takes out this heart of stone, gives you this heart of flesh, so that, verse 20, they may walk in my statues, statutes and keep my rules and obey them. That's why he gives this, this spirit, so that you can walk in his statutes and keep his rules and obey them. He empowers you to do the very thing he commands you to do. Which again raises this question, what does he command you to do? What does he want you to do? 
Well, Jesus was asked a very similar question. Somebody came up to him and said, hey, there's a bunch of rules in the Bible. Can you boil it all down to us? What, what, what is the, the most important thing God wants us to do? And Jesus says, well, you could actually summarize all of the law, all of God's rules really into two things. God wants you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God wants from us. He wants you to love him and to love your neighbor to devote yourself to him and to give yourself away in love for the sake of your neighbor. Now, here's the thing. Just knowing that information doesn't give you the power to do it. We're back to the wimpies and the Oreo thing, right? Just knowing what I should do doesn't mean that I have the power to do it. So God sends you his spirit and empowers you to do the very thing he asks of you. Uh, this may have been your experience when you were a kid. It may have been from me as well, I don't really remember, but this may have happened, where you go down uh, to the living room on you know, Christmas morning, and you unwrap one of the boxes, and it's this present, let's say it's this nice, shiny, remote-control car. And you take it out of the package, you take it out of the box, and you turn it on, and it, it doesn't work. And you're like, this toy stinks, this is busted, Christmas is ruined. And, um, and then you look at the box, and it says, Battery's not included. And you're like, well, Dad, I know where you're about to go. In your robe, CVS at 7 in the morning. Go get some, I need those double A's. But here's this thing that can't do what it was designed to do unless it has some external power to, to energize it. And the Bible's saying the same thing. In the same way, human beings were designed to love to love God and to love our neighbors. And yet, because of sin, because of the way that, that our insides have become twisted and warped and damaged by our own failures and our, and our own sinfulness, we can't do the very thing that we were created to do. And so the good news of the gospel is that God fixes that. Yes, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus forgives your sin. And the good news of the gospel is that he empowers you to go do and be what you were created to go and do and be. This is why, this is going to be very cheesy and cringy, sorry, bear with me, but this is why being a Christian is more like being Spider-Man than it is like being Batman. Batman has no superpowers. This is just a rich, smart dude with a bunch of cool gadgets. I mean, he's cool, he's my favorite, I got it, but he doesn't have any powers, he's just rich. Spider-Man, if you remember, he gets bit by that radioactive spider and he can shoot stuff, shoot webs out of his wrists. He can, he can climb walls. He, he has that weird like spidey sense thing. He has a power inside of him. And the Bible's saying, you know, this is kind of the same thing. God indwells you with a, with a, with a supernatural spiritual power. And I know for some of you that might sound really bizarro. And really strange, but here's the basic point. The point is, is that when you get connected to Jesus by faith, you are empowered to live a new life. A life that is now marked and shaped by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. A, a life where your heart is now soft and humble and, and you, can, you can admit when you've screwed up, you can ask people for forgiveness. 
You, you, have, you have an animating power inside of you that, that helps you to choose kindness and forgiveness when everything in you wants to choose anger and exclusion. You have something inside of you that's drawing your attention back to Jesus over and over and over and over. That's what human beings were created to be. And so that's what God empowers us to be and do through his spirit. That's what the spirit does. Now, final question. How do you get it? If that's something that's interesting to you and you're like, yeah, I would like to have access to kind of being able to change my life in that way, what do you do? How do you get it? Well, let's go back to verse 18. Ezekiel says, or this passage says, and when they come there, meaning back to the land of Israel, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. That's Ezekiel's way of saying these, these idols, these images of God that they had set up in the temple. God expects them, when I bring you back to your land, I want you to get rid of all that stuff. This stuff that you used to cherish and love and it, and it blocked your ability to enjoy me and enjoy my love for you. I want you to get rid of that stuff. But then he goes on in verse 21 and he says this. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. He's saying, if your heart continues to go after these things, I will let your heart experience the natural consequence of what a life lived with a hard heart feels like. That's what it means when he says, um, I will bring their, their deeds upon their own heads. In other words, he's saying, okay, if you love money, if you love money to such a degree that you, um, uh, you're, you're hardened toward God and you're hardened towards his grace, God says, okay, I, I will let you have what your heart wants and I will let you experience the, the emptiness of a life of greed. I'll let you experience uh, a life where you constantly feel like I never have enough and you, and you, you will experience the, the, you know, this feeling miserable as a stingy hoarder that always wants more and more and more and more and more. Or, you know, if, if your heart loves work to such a degree that your heart is hardened toward God and his grace, God says, fine, have at it, knock yourself out, and you will experience the wear and tear that a life of workaholism and stress feels like. You'll get to experience all the anxiety, all the sleeplessness, all the stomach ulcers that come along with a life of being a workaholic. Here's maybe an interesting way to think about what's going on in Ezekiel. If you think about your phone, most of us have our phone on us at all times, and we're using it all throughout the day, and we're, you know, we're texting our, 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 our friends, and we're checking Instagram, and we're, we're uh, taking pics of our food, and... Uh, you know, throughout the day, your battery is just draining, 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 draining. If you have an iPhone, it drains and drains pretty rapidly. And at some point, you need to f- get the cord out and plug it up to a power source because you need to energize the thing. You need to recharge the thing. If you use that as an idea, it, that's an interesting way to think about what Ezekiel's saying. He's saying every single one of us is hooking up our heart to some source of power. We're hooking our heart up to something saying, this is going to give me meaning and security and life and vitality, which is to say every one of us has faith. You may not like that language. You may not consider yourself a religious or a spiritual person, but, but really every one of us is hooking our heart up to something saying, this is what's going to fill me. This is what's going to energize me. And so the question is not, do you have faith? The question is, what is your faith in? 
And is that thing that you are drawing power from, is it filling you with life and vitality or is it crushing you into the dust? Ezekiel is inviting us to unplug our hearts from the things that we think is going to provide us with power and life and joy. Netflix, Amazon, bourbon, whatever, and to plug it into God where you will find real power, real life, real vitality. So here's the final question. Final question is this. What is going to compel you to want to unplug from the things that you've been receiving life from so that you will plug into God himself? What is it about him that's going to convince your heart to make that switch? And here's how I want to answer it. I want to answer it by taking us what might feel like a random detour, but it is not. Stay with me. If you remember the plot from the movie Shrek, the first Shrek, stay with me. You have, you know, beautiful Princess Fiona, and she is locked up in the castle, and she has this horrible uh, kind of enchantment put on her. And uh, the enchantment will be broken when she gets, you know, a true love's kiss. And so her heart is fixated on being rescued by this handsome prince who's going to rescue her and kiss her and break the enchantment, and they'll live happily ever after. And, of course, she's disappointed and annoyed and frustrated when it's Shrek that shows up and rescues her because he's this disgusting ogre. Now, she doesn't know this at the, at the moment, but Lord Farquaad was the one who hired Shrek to go rescue her, because, not because he loves her, but because he secretly wants to become king. He's just using her. She doesn't know that. Nobody knows that at this point in the plot. So Shrek rescues Fiona and brings her to Lord Farquaad, and the whole time her heart is fixed on this, this handsome prince that's awaiting for me, this, this, this handsome love of my life who's going to kiss me and make everything better. And so he brings her to Lord Farquaad. They, they get married, and, and right as they are getting married, the sun goes down, and it's like the enchantment breaks for a second, and she transforms into an ogre. She, she, you know, she reveals who, who, is, who is really inside of her, this, this spell that's been put on her. She's this nasty, disgusting ogre as well. And when Lord Farquaad sees who she really is, he's revolted. He, he totally rejects her. He calls in the guards to kill her or to go lock her back up in the castle. And, of course, pandemonium breaks out. Shrek comes in. He professes his love for her. They kiss. She transforms into her true love's form, which is an ogre, and they, they beat up all the guards, and they live happily ever after, and the credits roll to a song by Smash Mouth, I think. I should have, I should have given you a spoiler alert because I just went through the whole movie in about three minutes. But the reason I tell you that is because here is this woman who had her heart dead set on this thing. This is the thing that she loved, that she prized, and in the end it proved to be empty. It didn't actually love her back. And yet when she experiences this love of Shrek, who was she had totally underestimated it, she totally wasn't interested at all, and yet she experiences, he sees me, warts and all. He literally sees how the ugliness of who I really am, and it doesn't deter him. He finds me beautiful. He's committed to me. He's willing to fight for me. He's willing to confess his love for me. That literally transforms her. Here's what I want you to see. In this passage, look what God is doing. 
as his people, we have acted so ugly. We have rebelled against him. We've literally kicked him out of his own house, out of his own temple by setting up these rival gods that we love way more than him. We've, we've received the, the, the due judgment that was, that was, you know, that the people of Israel deserved. And yet in the midst of all of that, all of our ugliness, all of our rebellion, what does the Lord do? He comes after us. This whole passage is him saying, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to transform you. I want to be with you. I mean, look at what he says in verse 16. He says, even though I scattered you, I have still been with you. I've been your sanctuary. So much so, this relentless commitment at the end of verse 20, he says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. He longs for this personal intimacy with his people. So much so that he comes after them himself. In the very person of Jesus, he leaves the glory of heaven to come after these rebellious people. And what does he do? He chases us down and he has all of our deeds fall upon his head where he undergoes the brutality of the cross, which is what a life of a hard-hearted human deserves. And he gives everything else away. Don't you see the beauty of Jesus? I mean, the cross, when you first look at the cross, you're, you're like, that is, it's, it's like an ogre. It's so confusing. It's so ugly. There's, I could, there's no way I would ever find joy and life and power from that. And yet, it is the kiss of your true love. It is the demonstration that God sees us in all of our ugliness and all of our brokenness and he still pursues. He still comes after us. He's still willing to give up everything in order to recapture you. And when you see that, when you know you've been loved like that, that's what grips your heart. That's what, that's what captures your heart. When you know on the cross he breathed his last so that you could have God's very breath inside of you. When you see on the cross he became powerless so that you and I might have access to his power. When you see what he did for you, doesn't that start to move your heart and say, why would I keep plugging into Amazon and work and sex and vacation and this or that? Those are wonderful things, but I'm not going to draw life from those things anymore. They can't give me what Jesus can give me. This is what Ezekiel is saying. Unplug from anything that's blocking your enjoyment of his love and his grace and cast yourself into his arms, because that's how you get it. That's how you get the power. You will receive the power of his spirit when you discover that Jesus is actually your, your true love, when he actually sees everything about you and is still committed to you. When that captures your heart and you find yourself being thrown into his arms, that's where you receive the power. So the invitation for you this morning is to see the beauty of Jesus. And if he seems ugly to you, if he seems confusing to you, then I would just beg you to take another look because there may be more beauty and more life there than you realize. So consider an invitation. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have not abandoned us when you had every right to, but you've come after us. And you have promised to renew us and not just us, but this whole world. Thank you for your love and your commitment for people like us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.